Good morning. The word of God from Psalm 20. The psalmist teaches us to trust God rather than human power. May the Lord answer you in a day of trouble. May the name of Jacob's God protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and sustain you from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering. May he give you what your heart desires and fulfill your whole purpose. Let us shout for joy at your victory and lift the banner in the name of our God. May the Lord fulfill all your requests. Now I know that the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with mighty victories from his right hand. Some take pride in chariots and others in horses. But we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. May he answer us on the day that we call. The word of God for the people of God. If you have a copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you now to take that and turn to Psalm 20, which Megan just read for us. If you don't have a copy, there should be one uh, uh, under the seat in front of you, and Psalm 20 can be found on page 481. 481. When I was a kid, my parents owned a hunting shack. We called it a cabin. It was really a shack, uh, very rustic up in the north woods of New Hampshire on First Connecticut Lake. And each summer, we'd spend a couple of weeks up there at a time. And I have many, many happy memories of our time up there in Pittsburgh. But as I was preparing for this sermon this morning, what stuck out to me was none of those specific memories, but two wall plaques that hung in that rustic cabin. The first one was really quite humorous. It was just a poem of all things about dirty dishes. And I can still recite it to you. Thank God for dirty dishes. They have a tale to tell. While others may go hungry, we're eating very well. With home, health, and happiness, I shouldn't want to fuss by the stack of evidence. God's been very good to us. In hindsight, there's a bit of a prosperity gospel in there. But as a child, I just thought it was a great poem. It was a pretty good motivator for doing dishes. But the second plaque intrigued me even more. In a Celtic script, there were words written in white on a brown background. And at the top, there was a green Irish-themed design. And at the top, it said, an Irish blessing. And it read like this. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face and upon your fields. And until we meet again, may God hold you in the palm of his hand. Now, I did not grow up in a liturgical church background, so this idea of a formal blessing was just intriguing to me. This plaque was not quite a prayer, and that specific blessing has a long history and tradition in Irish culture. Now, in our Western culture, we aren't as familiar with formal blessings like that, are we? 
But think about our farewell sayings. Sayings like, stay safe out there. Take care. Have a great day. Or my personal favorite, keep it between the ditches. They all sound like commands, don't they? But they're not. They are expressing well wishes, a wish for safety, for prosperity, a sort of blessing upon a person. That's what our farewells are. Now, the Bible is full of these kinds of blessings, but implicitly, they all recognize that God must do the answering for that blessing to come about. So, in that respect, they are all prayers. And Psalm 20 has this form and this character of blessing. But to this point in the book of Psalms, it's a very unique psalm. And you may ask, well, how is it unique? Well, you may have noticed that as Megan read it for us, there are nine requests stacked up at the beginning. That's unique. We've not seen that to this point. And notice that this psalm is directed towards one person by a group of people. This is where the English language doesn't help us out. The second person, you and your, in the first several verses, is it plural? Is it singular? We can't tell in English. Well, the original language tells us it's singular. This is a psalm written for a group of people to express certain wishes towards one person. Verse 5 is in the first person plural. We. So who is the individual being addressed? Well, we know from the context of the Psalms generally here in the first book of the Psalms, and we know specifically from verse 6 that the individual being addressed is God's anointed one, his chosen king, the king of Israel. Originally, that was King David, and eventually any king that followed legitimately in his line. We would call them Davidic kings. And what's the setting? Is this just a, a random prayer, a random farewell blessing, if you will, that the people of Israel would express to the king at any specific or any general point? No, it's very specific. Look at verse 5. Note the reference to people raising banners. There's a war cry being given in verse 5. And in verse 7, we have battle machines and cavalry mentioned, chariots and horses. So the context of Psalm 20 is this. We have a corporate prayer of blessing upon the Davidic king, their ruler anointed by God before he leads them into battle. It's a battle liturgy. Now, in our context today, we don't have an anointed by God leader on the earth in the same sense. And we shouldn't look for one in any particular election that's coming up in the next couple of years. So there is no one with the clear command of God anointed by him with a right to rule to whom we are obligated to render obedience and obligated to follow into any sort of physical battle. So should we just write Psalm 20 off 
and move on to the next psalm in our series. Well, before we do that, before we consider Psalm 20 to be irrelevant for our context, notice how the people of God describe the circumstances facing them and their king before they enter battle. Look at verse 1. The CSB says, a day of trouble. The word trouble means adversity, need, distress, anxiety. All of a sudden, maybe the psalm isn't quite that hard to relate to. I wonder how often this month you found yourself in a situation that could be described as a day of adversity. Adversity leads us to feel our need, to feel distress or anxiety deeply. So perhaps this psalm does actually have something for us after all. So let's walk through this psalm by making three observations leading to one conclusion with four implications. Three observations, one conclusion, four implications. Here's our first observation. We also live in a day of adversity. We spend our days, it would seem, in trouble, distress, anxiety. Sometimes, and in some seasons, adversity and anxiety seem to define our very existence, doesn't it? Some of you, the emotions are welling up right now thinking about the adversity in your own heart and life in this season. Robert George is a philosopher and professor at Princeton. He describes our current cultural moment as the age of feeling. Pop culture wants us to follow our hearts and to live by our emotions. And I don't need to give you a litany of examples to prove that. We hear that message all the time. But think about it. If we live following our hearts and our feelings and our emotions, then the result can't be anything but instability. There's no alternative. Instability internally and culturally if we're just all following our hearts. Living by our feelings is adopting a highly unstable existence that can only result in anxiety. And here's the reality. Many of us live life with a subterranean stream of anxiety flowing pretty consistently near the surface of our hearts, even on the best day possible. So when something jostles our existence, when something obstructs our path, when we have a perceived need or face what feels like a pretty significant adversity, even if it only looks trivial, our low-grade, always-there anxiety overflows its banks and just soaks everything around us. There's an indie group called Arcade Fire 
Maybe some of you are familiar with them. I was not until I found this song. They have a song titled Age of Anxiety. Listen to the words. It's the age of doubt, and I doubt we'll figure it out. Is it you or is it me? In the age of anxiety. Fight the fever with TV in the age where nobody sleeps and the pills do nothing for me in the age of anxiety. When I look at you, I see what you want me to. When you look at me, you see what I want you to see. It's a maze of mirrors. It's a hologram of a ghost, and you can't quite touch it, which is how it hurts us the most. So we keep it all inside, and we hide it deep in a drawer. Say your prayers tonight. Someone finds it after the war, living in the age of anxiety. Research tells us that 31% of young people between the ages of 13 and 18 will end up with an anxiety disorder. One out of three. And adults are not exempt from anxiety. Chapman University puts out an annual survey of fear, survey on American fear, In the last report that came out in 2021, 80% of Americans, 80% feared corrupt government officials. And over half of Americans fear corrupt pollution, cyber terrorism, economic collapse, civil unrest, illness, and death. We live in the age of anxiety. But it gets worse. Because we add to this mix our weakness, our shame, our brokenness, and our sin, and we have the perfect test tube environment for anxiety. So even before our head lifts off of the pillow, our instincts are primed to reach for our phones to see what we've missed, who we're behind, what we're supposed to be outraged by or fearful of today. Unspoken thoughts and unconscious unconscious reflections spin in our souls. Am I doing enough? How do others perceive me? If I'd done something differently, would there have been a better outcome? What if my existence could be better and I'm just missing that one thing? And we live almost perpetually in a day of adversity, anxiety, and distress. It's the first observation. Second observation. Where we turn in our adversity and anxiety matters. As the subjects of the king join in with the king in addressing their preparation for the day of adversity here in Psalm 20, they point their finger to culturally acceptable ways of entering that adversity and eliminating anxiety. You can see that in verse 7. When going to battle in the ancient Near East, You wanted the best advantage possible, and that meant you wanted what? Chariots and horses. 
And while horses and chariots may be out of our experience, the principle is not. Right now, if you were a Ukrainian commander near Bakhmut, you want the German Leopard tanks or the American Abram tanks on the ground with you in the battle. Or consider the former U.S. Air Force personnel among us, men and women who flew some of the most advanced war and surveillance machines on the earth. It only makes sense when you're entering the day of adversity, in this case the battle, you want to be equipped, you want to be prepared, ready, informed. But my guess is you probably didn't rev a tank this week or take flight in a surveillance aircraft last time you were anxious about something. So what are the culturally acceptable chariots and horses that we turn to in our anxiety and adversity today? We've been told, first of all, by our culture that we ought to look inward for the answers. You are your chariot and your horse. And while there is certainly helpful information to be learned as we grow in self-awareness, let's not discount that. We all know intuitively that deliverance in our adversity is not going to be found internally. It hasn't to this point, and it's not going to in the future. But we've also been told by our culture in the day of adversity and anxiety, just wait another four years when you have another chance to put someone in the Oval Office that can take care of some of these larger cares and distresses and need that are facing our country. And there's certainly reason to be thoughtful about whom we vote for and evaluating the candidates with wisdom and discernment, but as of July 4th, America will be 247 years old, and we ought to know by now that whoever occupies the Oval Office for the next four years is not going to deliver us from anxiety. Deliverance can never be found in an elected official. Maybe you've been told that if you follow a certain plan or read enough of a certain author or try a certain method of living life, this will help you deal with your anxiety. And there is certainly help to be gained from the knowledge of others when it comes to living in a day of distress and adversity without question. But can a change of mind or discipline or attitude or mental posture or routine, can a change in any of those things really get to the root of the problem? may address the symptom, but it can never get to the root. So culture also tells us through all of the marketing and advertisement, there is some gizmo, some gadget that you need that will help you live your life better, more efficiently, eliminating stress and anxiety. Or, hey, there's a show coming out next week that may be just the ticket to help you de-stress and remove anxiety. And let's be honest, there's always another Marvel movie coming out, right? There's always another Marvel movie coming out. 
So maybe that's going to be the answer. Maybe unlike last time, this one will be enough of a diversion to move you past your past and present anxiety and get you through to a place of health. But don't plan on it. Or maybe it's better food, good food. Maybe it's a job change. Maybe it's a vacation. But we all know at the end of the day, there's a problem with all of these solutions. We bring ourselves to every single one of them. So our distress and anxiety is going to show up somehow, some way. There's a whole movement among young men right now that's buying into this idea of stoicism. Who cares what you feel? Just buck up, deal with it, and move on. A sort of stoicism that says the good life is forged in suffering and trial. And maybe you've bought into that, or some form of that. So you've tried to bottle up your emotions and your anxiety and your fears. You've ignored them and buried them deep. That's like trying to get rid of the smell of the week-old garbage in your trash can at home by double and triple bagging it. It may take care of the smell for a while, but the rotting stuff is still there. You haven't gotten rid of it. It's just getting worse. Friends, these are all culturally acceptable options today for us that we could put our hope for deliverance from anxiety and adversity. But the reality is all of them are inadequate. All of them are inferior. Practical? Sure. Helpful? Maybe. But inferior. And those who rely on such, such culturally acceptable options for deliverance from anxiety would... Well, what does verse 8 say? What will happen to those who trust the chariots and the horses of any society for deliverance from anxiety? They will collapse and fall. Observation number one, we live our lives in a day of adversity. Observation number two, where we turn in our adversity matters. Observation number three, there is a better hope for deliverance. There is a better hope for deliverance. As the subjects of the anointed king, the people of God were instructing one another through the repetition of this psalm. They were catechizing each other reminding each other that there's a better hope for deliverance in the day of adversity than anything that human culture or wit or wisdom could devise. So in that sense, Psalm 20 is a sort of counter-catechesis for an anxious heart. Culture catechizes us to to think of deliverance in certain terms. But all of those are independent of any reference to God. But this passage reminds us that there's a better hope 
for deliverance. So, let's instruct one another right now. You're going to participate with me now in the sermon. So, using the words on the screen, join me in reading the underlined portions. Let's catechize one another by reminding us where our better hope is for deliverance. Join me in the underlined portion. May the Lord answer you in the day of adversity. May the name of the God of Jacob be your top security. May he send you help from the holy place. And from Zion, may he support you. May he remember all your offerings and make rich your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you according to your heart and bring all your plans to fulfillment. We will shout aloud in your salvation and in the name of our God, we will raise our banner. Friends, in the light of such a better hope for deliverance, notice how the Davidic king responds to his people and their words in verse 6. Now I am sure that the Lord will deliver his chosen king. He will intervene for him from his holy heavenly temple and display his mighty ability to deliver. What do you read in those verses? What do you hear? You hear confident assurance in the day of adversity. Picture a whole group of people, men in armor, women and children surrounding them. They're leaving the gates to go to battle following their king. And the king stands up after hearing the people commending to him the salvation of God that will be brought to bear on his behalf. And the king says, now I know God will deliver me. He will intervene. He will display his mighty ability. Don't you envy that kind of confident assurance? Don't you wish you had that for your day of adversity? Don't you have a promise like that for your anxiety? But here's the reality. I'm not an anointed king, and neither are you. We have no such kingly token or promise from God that as God's anointed king, he will display his ability on our behalf, that he will deliver us. But we have something so much better. Friend, consider this. Jesus was one of David's descendants. In line for David's throne. As the final Davidic king, he faced such a battle as this psalm talks about. He faced a day of extreme need, of overwhelming adversity, of distress as no other earthly king before or since has ever experienced. But like the Davidic king here in Psalm 20 and in verse 6, Jesus had every confidence that God 
would deliver him on his day of adversity. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ offered requests with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his devotion. Do you remember that verse here? May he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt offering? That is exactly how God responded to King Jesus. God answered Jesus and showed the all-sufficient might of his salvation by raising King Jesus from the dead. The greater than David King Jesus took his reliance upon God, not just to battle, but all the way to the point of death, to the point of laying his life down, to the point of giving up his spirit voluntarily because he knew God would deliver him. So the anticipated victory, if Jesus is your king, if you are his subject, his victory is your victory. And the anticipated victory of Psalm 20 is yours fully. It is yours finally. It is yours in substance in a way that the people of Israel following King David to battle could never have comprehended. So here's our conclusion. Because the king conquered ultimate diversity, rather adversity, the king is able to deliver you from your anxiety. Because the king has conquered ultimate adversity, that same king is able to deliver you from your anxiety. And friends, that deliverance is certain. But it's also progressive. It's not all at once. I'm not saying that the king guarantees you will never again be anxious if you simply trust him. But the scriptures present King Jesus as the one who has secured our final deliverance and the one who is fleshing out that deliverance in our lives in this moment, whether or not you feel it. So the question is this. Will you entrust yourself to him? Or will you continue to rely on chariots and horses. For some of you, that means trusting Jesus for the very first time. Maybe you've seen in Jesus for the first time a better hope and a better deliverer from yourself, your suffering, and your sin. And Jesus is joyfully willing to be your king. All he requires is that you lay down, repent of seeking ultimate deliverance in anything and anyone else, any of the culturally acceptable options, you lay those things down and you place your trust in Jesus. That's it. And you can do that today. And Jesus will joyfully become your king. And for others of you, the question is still the same. You've, you've trusted King Jesus, but the question is this. Today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, when the anxiety is pressing in, will you entrust yourself to the king who is able to deliver you? Will you walk in the same pattern of faith as King David 
and his subjects because you're a subject of King Jesus. And perhaps in these moments your heart is longing to say yes, but you don't know that you have the kind or you don't know what that kind of faith would even look like. Well, in this text, we're given a game plan for addressing our anxiety. First, and here are our four implications. First, re-engage. Second, remember. Third, reflect. Fourth, rely. First, continually re-engage in community with the community of faith. This is counterintuitive. When faced with adversity or overwhelmed by anxiety, what is the first thing we want to do? We want to isolate. We want to withdraw. We want to curve inward on ourselves. We want to shut down. But like the people of God gathering before battle to restore their confidence and the confidence of their king and to declare trust, we too need the same corporate element, this community engagement in our and with our family of faith. So reach out to a Christian friend via text when the anxiety is rising. That's not the time to turn your phone off. If you're married, ask your spouse to pray for you in those moments. It's your closest community. As fearful as it may sound, let your life group into your battle with anxiety generally. And perhaps on occasion, with the specifics of what that anxiety looks like as you desire. And let's show up for one another. Friends, your absence from the gathering affects each of us because we all need the gathering, not just because of the content of the gathering, because, but because we need each other. We need to hear one another corporately admitting our sin and our weakness and exulting in the strength of our king, our king. We need the reminder that we're not an island adrift in the universe, nor is our church an island adrift in a city. No, we are connected with all of the weak and desperate, des desperate saints of all of the ages who have willingly found help and aid and deliverance in the mighty resurrected name of Jesus. So church, unless providentially hindered, let's continue to show up weekly for one another for these reasons, to be present in one another's lives, to remind one another of our status with the king among God's people as God's children. First, re-engage. Second, remember. Choose to remember this. If King Jesus is your king, then what is true of him is true of you. If King Jesus is your king, then when what is true of him is true of you. By faith, you have been united to him. So hear the Lord Jesus speak personally through the Davidic king. Now I know that Yahweh has determined to save his anointed one. He will answer from the heaven of his holiness with the all-sufficient might of the salvation of his right hand. So God determined to save his anointed one, David, and he did over and over again. And who benefited? All of David's subjects. 
And God determined to save his Messiah, the final anointed one, once and for all from death. And get this, who benefits? All of his subjects. What is true of King Jesus is true of you, if he's your king. So remember, though it seems like anxiety and distress and need has the upper hand at any given moment, re-engage and remember what is true of King Jesus is true of you. Third, reflect. Reflect on God's character. Did you notice that the idea of the name of God was referenced three different times in Psalm 20? Verse 1, may the name of Jacob's God protect you. How can a name protect? Verse 5, let us lift the banner in the name of our God. Verse 7, but we take pride in the name of the Lord our God. You see, in Scripture, there's an equal sign between God's name and God's character. God's name is is his character. God's character is who he is in his essence. Not the mood that he may or may not be in, not the posture that he may or may not assume towards you in a given moment. His character is the rock-solid reality of who he is. So friends, in the moment of anxiety, remember the character of your God. His character towards you in Jesus is nothing but steadfast love. Period. Full stop. So reflect on his character. Re-engage, remember, reflect, finally, rely. Choose to rely on your king. In your need, in your distress, in your anxiety, choose to rely on on King Jesus first and foremost. Because some take pride in chariots, and some trust in horses, and others rely on a political deliverer. Others rely on some inward exploration of meaning and purpose. Others rely on some self-creation, others in entertainment or adventure. But we, children of God, subjects of the king, we, in our own day of anxiety and adversity and distress and need, we will take pride in the name of our Lord Jesus. He is our king, and he delivers. And so church, right now, Let's declare our resolve together in prayer, verbally, vocally, using verses 7 through 9. They're on the screen. Some trust in chariots and others in horses, but we will depend on the Lord our God. They will fall down, but we will stand forth. The Lord will deliver the king. He will answer us when we call to him for help. So, Father, we ask that you would answer us in the day of our adversity and anxiety. 
May your character be our top security. Send us your help and support. Send us your aid from your heavenly temple by your spirit for the sake of Jesus, our King, who right now is seated next to you. His body is no longer in a tomb. He's conquered in the day of adversity, and he is our King and alive. So remember, dear Father, for Jesus' sake, remember his perfect offering and sacrifice for us on our behalf. King Jesus, grant this our prayer from our hearts. Bring all of your plans for us to fulfillment by means of the adversity that you allow in our lives. Conquer our anxiety. And as for us, in your name, we will raise our banners for war against anything within us that would turn away from you, our true hope. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would grant us the courage to re-engage regularly with one another in community, to remember what is true of Jesus is true of us, to reflect on the true character of Father, Son, and Spirit, and to resolve to rely each moment on the strength of King Jesus, for we have no strength otherwise. Father, Son, and Spirit, fulfill all these, our requests, for the sake of your name and your glory, we pray. Amen.